zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to a very special vintage video Patreon pick where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the Vintage Video team, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, Louis Letizia has asked us to review The Boys from Brazil, released October 6, 1978. It was written by Haywood Gould, based on the novel of the same name by Ira Levin, directed by Franklin J. Schaffner, and released by 20th Century Fox. At the close of World War II, many high-ranking Nazi officers and collaborators, estimates range as high as 9,000, escaped prosecution for their crimes by relocating to South America. The channels through which these officers made their escapes were called rat lines. Established by Argentine President Juan Perón, a believer of the ideologies of Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, and their like. It was a weirdly open secret that so many Nazis were allowed to live out their lives comfortably in Argentina, Brazil, and Chile. America and Russia, too, provided refuge for these sometimes unrepentant Nazis by hiring them to work in our space programs in an effort to claim victory in the so-called space race. Simon Weisenthal was a Jewish-Austrian Holocaust survivor. After incarcerations in multiple concentration camps during the war, he dedicated the remainder of his life to tracking down fugitive Nazi war criminals and bringing them to justice. Serge Klarsfeld is a Romanian-born Nazi hunter whose father died in Auschwitz concentration camp. He too has dedicated his life to keeping extensive records of the atrocities committed. Like Weisenthal, he also hunted Nazis in South America, and his work has led to several high-profile indictments. Amazingly, Weisenthal lived to be 96, passing away in 2005, and Klarsfeld is still alive and active today. Really? Turns out hating Nazis keeps people alive for a long time. <laughs> you got a purpose, you know? In 1976, Ira Levin's novel The Boys from Brazil was published, and it quickly landed on various bestseller lists. It detailed the fictional post-war clashing of real-life supervillain Dr. Joseph Mengele and fictional Nazi hunter Yakov Lieberman, an amalgamation of real-life Nazi hunters Weisenthal and Klarsfeld, renamed Ezra Lieberman in the film adaptation. The novel was optioned immediately for Sir Lou Grade to produce, which actually makes perfect sense. The premise of this book is completely bonkers and sounds impossible to make on paper, which means the only people who would consider adapting it are Sir Lou Grade or Melvin Simon, and Grade won this race. To Kill a Mockingbird helmer Robert Mulligan was the first attached to direct, but by May of 77, he had already been replaced by Planet of the Apes director Franklin J. Schaffner. At this time in his career, Laurence Olivier was having a lot of health problems and agreed to do any decent paying gigs to ensure that in the event of his death, he would leave behind enough to support his family. George C. Scott was the first attached to play Joseph Mengele, but stepped away before production began. Gregory Peck and Lily Palmer signed onto the project purely for the opportunity to work with Olivier, and James Mason, who had initially auditioned for the roles filled by Olivier and Peck, settled for a smaller role because he considered the lead actors friends, and he'd never been to Portugal, where the film was set to be shot. <laughs> to properly play the titular boys from Brazil, newcomer Jeremy Black took speech training to pull off the English and German accents. Oh, I was going to say is uh, just those two, but I'm, I'm guessing he was American to begin with. Right. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> Dr. Dirk Bromhall, Britain's leading biologist at the time, was brought on as a scientific consultant to assure that the science of the story checks out. 
Bromhall is credited as the first scientist to successfully fertilize mammalian eggs without sperm to create embryos. The film stretched its $12 million budget surprisingly far, with a half million devoted to the reproduction of a Paraguayan jungle in Portugal. They spent $50,000 to ship six Dobermans from LA to Vienna. Because they did not employ stuntmen for the Doberman scene, the trainer was ever-present, always barely off-camera to keep things running smoothly. That's terrifying. A little yeah. bit, right? <laughs> Producer Grade and director Schaffner fought consistently over how much blood to use on set because Schaffner wanted gore and Grade wanted TV broadcast deals. The film was nominated for three Academy Awards, Olivier for lead actor, Robert Swink for editing, and Jerry Goldsmith for original score, but won nothing. Though the same night, Olivier took home a statue for Lifetime Achievement. Would have been weird to win Best Actor and Lifetime Achievement the <laughs> yeah. same night. I don't think that's ever happened. So I feel like he must have known going in that he wasn't going to get the Best Actor. Despite playing the bigger part in the film, Peck went unnominated, and audiences rejected the performance as unbelievable, something Peck blamed on a preconceived notion of the characters he had previously been allowed to play. I feel like that's a fair assessment yeah. yeah why he didn't receive any acclaim for this yeah because i think he does a perfectly acceptable job but i think, I think people great. were just like wait what that's he's supposed to be the nice dad guy but also i didn't really i didn't with a lot of these older actors yeah i don't i'm not super familiar with them in this in this age range so i didn't even think about who it was until afterwards and i'm like yeah. oh wow he did a great job yeah had, had he not played captain ahab at this point well, this was his first outright villainous character. I mean, there's there's a lot of conflict in the Ahab character, but uh, this was the first time where he was literally playing just a monster of a person. Rush Hour director Brett Ratner announced in 2006 his intention to remake the property, but that obviously didn't happen and won't now since Ratner's sort of a persona non grata these days. I still think it should get remade, though. I absolutely do. It's Actually, great I, th story. I think it would have been fun in the 90s to do a sequel where oh, you follow up with the kids. Yeah. But uh, but neither of those things happened. The entire opening credits play out as white text over black for the first two minutes of the film. We finally start picture in Paraguay where a car waits for a passing train. We cut to a restaurant called Heidelberg that seems to cater to German-speaking customers, and a man moves through the crowd trying to sell stolen or counterfeit watches. He's mostly ignored by the German customers. A military parade marches through the streets, and on the other side of the road we can see a young, sweaty Steve Gutenberg watching more and more heavyset German guys arrive at the restaurant. Again, I, this is my problem with not reading the credits before I watch the movie. Afterwards, I'm like, man, that guy looked a lot like Steve Gutenberg. <laughs> <laughs> not assuming it was. Yeah. <laughs> Their clothes are fancy, but in tatters, suggesting they are overdue for replacement. Two of the Germans leave in a car together with a third man, and Gutenberg races through the restaurant to his van so he can follow them. We cut to a bullfighting ring. More Germans are collected from the crowd to meet with the first few. They all convene at a photography shop, and Gutenberg watches them all shake hands outside before he turns to walk away. The Germans get back in their cars and drive to a palatial estate behind a massive gate. Gutenberg manages to get the attention of a young boy in charge of locking the gate behind them. Now we cut to an airport where Gutenberg snaps photos of the Germans driving out onto a runway and parking beside a private jet. Later that day, we see Gutenberg dropping off his new friend Ishmael, the gate boy, in the slums of Paraguay. He tosses the young boy a plastic radio as payment for his help and waves goodbye. Of all the gifts in the world for this kid, he chose a radio. Yeah. <laughs> Later that night, Gutenberg breaks into the photographer's office and finds small passport-sized photos of several of the Germans who visited here today. The first is Walter Gotel, aka Gogol from the Bond films, 
Also in the stack is Gunter Meisner, or as we saw him last, Slugworth from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. We hard cut now to Vienna, Austria. Ezra Lieberman steps off a trolley, and as he approaches his building, his landlord starts to give him shit. I hate to bother such a famous Nazi hunter like yourself with such trifles as the rent, but it is the third of the month. Quite so. You will have a check in uh, several days. He also somehow claims that Lieberman has so much stuff piled up in his apartment that it's doing damage to the pipes upstairs from him, which are <laughs> leaking throughout the building. I don't know how that would work. When we finally step inside the apartment, it's a cartoonish leak, pouring down from the ceiling into buckets that would no doubt be full in under a minute. Lieberman's sister tells him that he has a call from Paraguay, and he takes it immediately. It's Kohler, that's the Gutenberg character, and he claims he sent photos, but Lieberman never got them. Everyone's shouting so loud it's impossible to follow their conversations. Eventually, the Liebermans shout their landlord out of the room, and Ezra returns to his call. Lieberman tries to let Kohler down easy, informing him that what he appears to be describing is no surprise. Mr. Kohler, it may be a blinding revelation to you that there are Nazis in Paraguay, but I assure you it is no news to me. And if you stay there much longer, there will still be Nazis in Paraguay, but there will be one less Jewish boy in the world. Kohler explains that they aren't just hiding anymore, they're convening with intent. They've been planning some sort of operation from Ralph Gunther's estate. So is that required? Like, in order to, I don't know, arrest these guys or extricate them? Like, do they have to do something else bad in order to, to arrest It should be guys? enough to just find people who are well, outstanding war criminals. That's my question. Like, at least in real life, but, you know, outside this movie, like, did they actually have to catch them committing additional crimes? Well, they're probably, it's probably a non-extradition country. So they, they, despite their crimes that they committed in the past, the, it doesn't matter. Like they, they all, that's why Ezra's like, like, I know they're there, but what can I do basically? But that's also what he's dedicated his life to is catching these people and seeing them arrested. So, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's just weird that, uh, he's so dismissive of it. We well, can't do anything. Well, then what has he been doing his whole life? Why is he called a Nazi hunter if he literally well, can't he, hunt Yeah, Nazis? he has to wait for them to leave the country. When he asks for advice, Lieberman says, get out of the country. Later, we see Kohler alone in his apartment testing a small radio transmitter. Once he gets it working, he slips it into a small box and takes it outside. At a table outside his building, the young boy, Ishmael, is trying to stare up a woman's dress when Kohler hands him the box containing the transmitter. We cut to a military airfield at night, a seaplane coasts up to the end of the tarmac, and all of the lights are turned off until Joseph Mangale, as played by Gregory Peck, has disembarked. Mangale is greeted and brought back to the Gunther estate. In the yard outside the mansion, Kohler struggles with his radio a bit. He accidentally plays a blast of music before ducking into the plants. Inside, Mangale descends the stairs to address Gunther and the other Germans they've collected for this important meeting. Kohler finally gets a clear signal on his radio and is shocked to learn who he's eavesdropping on. Gunther, would you do the honors? Certainly, Dr. Mengele. Mengele. Mengele is introduced to Captain Munt, played by Walter Gotel, and when Mengele gets to Captain Farnbach, played by Gunther Meisner, it seems no introduction is necessary. It's extremely flattering to be remembered after all those years, sir. Well, I am not so senile or so ungrateful. If his voice sounds different here, it's because I believe he was dubbed as Slugworth in Willy Wonka. Yeah, that makes sense. Next, Mangale meets Herr Schwimmer, played by Wolf Collar, who we've already seen as a number of Nazis on the show. And will in the future. Yeah. Mangale tells everyone to have a seat so they can discuss the matter at hand. 
We cut to the kitchen where little Ishmael wanders through with his new radio toy, and the flaw in Kohler's plan is immediately obvious to everyone. The voice of the convening Nazis continues to be broadcast on Kohler's recording device in the yard. Mengele starts laying out the details of the plan. Over the next 2.5 years, these men will arrange the covert assassination of 94 men on very specific dates. The targets are located all over the world and all 65 years of age. Based on the follow-up questions, it appears the rest of these Nazis are totally in the dark with regards to the details of the plan. They don't understand how killing a bunch of unrelated old men will serve the Aryan race, but Mangale reminds them that questioning orders isn't very Nazi of them, so they shut up and agree to do what he says. A guard circling the property passes Ishmael just as the boy is changing the station on his radio, and suddenly he can hear Mangale's voice being broadcast through the speakers. He snatches the radio away and rushes right into the meeting to bring it to Mangale's attention. He whispers into his ear about the apparent bug in the room. Find it. Find it! Kohler realizes he's in trouble and rushes out of there as the Nazis tear up the room looking for the mic he planted. In the background, a man is seen tearing porcelain dishes off the wall, and then when he confirms they have no recording device, he tosses them hard on the floor where they shatter to bits. Seems like, a little unnecessary. Why are you doing that? Right? One of the framed photos they check for a bug is an autographed picture of President Juan Perón, who, as we mentioned before, arranged for the safe travel of these men from Europe to Argentina. Seems like you could just use the radio to find it. Like, as you get, yeah, like, you, you get should... feedback louder and louder and louder as you got, got closer to it. Oh, They're smart. not that smart, are they? <laughs> Dumb Nazis. On the way back to his apartment, Kohler plays back his recording of the meeting and is quite pleased with himself. Back at the Gunther estate, Mangale has lined up the full staff of the property, and one at a time he waves the recording device they found in front of them like a hypnotist's watch, hoping to gauge their reactions. When he waves it in Ishmael's face, the kid tries to ignore it at first, and then makes a run for it, but he's intercepted. At home, Kohler makes another long-distance call to Lieberman. Ishmael is loaded into a car and leads the Nazis to Kohler's apartment. Why did you tell this kid where you lived? You should have yeah. just met up with the kid to give him the stuff. Kohler gets a hold of Lieberman and tells him about the plan to kill 94 65-year-old men and then starts to play the tape for him just as the Nazis skid up outside his building. It'll only take a second. Take your time. Old men don't go back to sleep once they have been awake. Just as the recording is reaching the important part, the Nazis burst into Kohler's room, throw him against the wall, and stab him deep in his chest. Mangale picks up the phone and listens, while Lieberman asks what happened. He seems to recognize the voice and angrily slams the phone down. In the background, we see Kohler's body hit the floor with his eyes open, but Gutenberg couldn't resist blinking here. Mangale removes Kohler's tape from the tape deck, and without even saying anything, Lieberman seems shaken by Mangale's silent presence over the phone. Mangale orders the room cleared of all evidence. As a reward for his cooperation, he orders the young boy Ishmael killed, and then something weird happens. The Nazi he tells to kill this child turns toward the camera, shocked. <laughs> I don't get it. You guys are Nazis, right? Mangale killed kids for fun all day. What part of this is a surprise at all? Aren't you excited to do it? Nazis love killing children. The next morning in Vienna, Lieberman's sister has found the photographs that Kohler has mailed him that had fallen through the cracks. They are the passport photos that Kohler took from the photography office. So more time has passed than I realized, because I thought right. that was like the same day, practically. Lieberman seems to recognize all these faces. The largest photo of the bunch is Colonel Edward Siebert, played by James Mason, standing beside a small plane on a runway. Lieberman tries to steal a puff of his sister's cigarette, but she reminds him he's in poor health and snatches it back. Next, we see Lieberman meeting with his friend Bainan, 
a press agent for Reuters, played by Denim Marcus Brody Elliott, who doesn't look excited to see him. Bannon lies that he's headed out for lunch before relenting and bringing Lieberman up to his office. Lieberman tells him about the 94 plotted assassinations. He tells Bannon to keep an ear out for reports of suspicious deaths of 65-year-old men. Bannon treats Lieberman like the old man that cried wolf, but his work has led to the imprisonment of Auschwitz guards, and he doesn't seem to have a history of making things up. So I don't know why he's so dismissive of this report. Well, but it's also just a very broad ask because yeah. he's, sure. he's I, I think that at this point they think that it's u.s and canada and you know 65 year old men and you're just like how how are we going to narrow this down right he reminds bainan of the horrors attributed to mangale the mastermind behind the assassinations that he did medical experiments on children injecting dyes into their eyes to force eye color amputating limbs and organs from thousands, operating without anesthetics, but with the strains of Wagner providing an obligato to the screams of the mutants he was creating to lechery. This line is actually quoted in a Slayer song, Angel of Death, which is a common nickname of Dr. Joseph Mengele's. Both men calm down a bit, and Bannon tries to relay what an impossible task Lieberman has set forth. Have you any idea how many men in our mid-60s die every day? I try not to think about it. Because he's in his mid-60s, and he doesn't like to question his mortality. We cut to a train station in Gladbeck, West Germany. Slugworth waits across the street from a bar, and a handsy drunk climbs a motorized bicycle to weave his way home. Slugworth follows the drunk to a bottling plant, where the man stops to take a piss behind a stack of pallets. Slugworth points his car at the stack and drives directly into the block of empty bottles, crushing the drunk man behind it. I would like to note that I also have it written as Slugworth in my notes. Yeah. <laughs> of course you do. Of course. We cut to a quiet lake somewhere, and the camera floats through a nearby laboratory. We see a vivisected frog on a desk, and beyond that, Mangale performs a physical on a young boy who seems to have his eyes dyed blue. When he hears a seaplane approaching, he excuses the boy and heads out to the dock to greet the pilot. It's James Mason as Siebert here with an update on their murder spree. Did you get the uh, call sign on that airplane? Oh, no, I didn't. PP ham. PP ham. <laughs> no need to look any further. Oh, further. man, I was giggling for like 10 minutes when I was like, PP ham. I just like how much you like that. <laughs> All of their assassins are in place right where they need to be, and the first batch of kills has succeeded on the proper dates. Siebert presents Mangale with a printed report of the mission's success. Siebert relays General Rausch's disappointment that they were not informed of Lieberman's discovery of the plan, and suggests that they postpone the second round of assassinations for a few months till things calm down. But Mangale insists that the entire plan would be a failure if they skipped three months of the killings. As Mangale walks Siebert back to the plane, they suppose that one day this lake house will be a museum that schoolchildren visit. Lieberman prepares to leave town in search of first-hand information on the case. He leaves his sister in charge of sorting through clippings mailed from his friend at Reuters. We cut to London as a double-decker bus pulls away from Alfred, aka Michael Goff, standing on a corner, and he crosses the street to enter an unlocked apartment. A couple are having sex upstairs, so Alfred slams the door downstairs to get their attention. The man in the bed is too young to be the target of the Nazi plan. The girl mentions that she rents a room from a family man and that he'd probably be pissed to find them here. Meanwhile, Lieberman shows up at the property of Frau Doring. An 11-year-old boy answers the door with jet black hair combed in a part. 
He claims to be the son of Frau Doring. When Lieberman finds her, she's being played by Rosemary Harris, a.k.a. Aunt May from the Raimi Spider-Mans. She invites Lieberman to take a seat when her son realizes who he is and asks Lieberman if he kills the Nazis he catches. Oh, that's against the law. It's much better to put them on trial so people can learn. Learn what? Who they were? What they did? So why even catch them? Whenever we see the kid's face, his eyes are an unnatural shade of bluish purple and they're clearly contact lenses. I'm kind of bothered by this. Yeah. Why not just cast a kid with blue eyes? No, yeah. better to get a kid who doesn't have blue eyes and send him to multiple countries to learn different accents. I don't I don't understand this. Like I feel like that's the easiest casting choice in the world. It's, yeah. it's just find somebody with piercing blue eyes and and if you have to dye his hair, dye his hair. I think they it needed to be literally contact lenses. It needed to look fake so that it would be so striking. If they found someone with actual striking blue eyes, it wouldn't be enough. Really? They needed it to look completely fake. For I some don't know. Reason. It's the only part that really bothers me from the film that that it's just that it's so absurd looking. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if we want to get into spoilers or sure. Yeah. But it seems that a man who, who is as renowned at spotting Nazis would at least have some inkling of what a certain person would look like when they were younger. Well, maybe he only has black and white photos to go off of, though. <laughs> Why, but why would your brain go there at all? It's yeah. true. Yeah. I mean, at this it's, point, <laughs> so I, I vaguely know the concept of this movie, mm -hmm. you know, and I still did not understand for the vast majority why you were killing 65-year-old men. Like, yeah. it was a mystery for me. And yeah. So even, even when I understand who this boy is, I don't understand what's happening in right. this movie. Yeah. There's still something to discover. Frau Doring tells her son to go practice in his room so she can have some alone time with Mr. Lieberman. Doring is a widow of the first round of assassinations, but she seems none the worse for the wear. In fact, she's eager to flirt with this decrepit old man. <laughs> Lieberman is very forward with his questioning, asking if her late husband was a Nazi or an associate of Joseph Mengele's. When Lieberman asks if her husband had any unusual hobbies, she mentions an established passion for beating the shit out of their son. So much so that Frau Doring has declared God the murderer. To set free a stupid little farm girl after 22 years of unhappiness. Do Nazis answer prayers, Herr Liebermann? No, that is God's business. And I have thanked him every night since he pushed Emil under that car. So this must be the guy that Slugworth smashed while he was taking a piss. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We cut back to the home with the couple having sex. Michael Goff is inspecting the house later and finds the shirtless boyfriend. When he pushes past the man to lecture the girl for her behavior, he finds her dead and strangled in the bed. The boyfriend strangles Michael Goff as well, and the man who looked like the assassin at first is now apparently the target. A phone rings in a kitchen, and when John is nowhere to be found, his wife answers it. The person on the phone is calling for Nancy, which it turns out is the name of the strangled girl. The woman moves into her room and finds the teen dead and her husband John strung up from the ceiling. Downstairs, a young boy hiding around a corner does a puppet show into the waiting phone, unaware of what his mother has just discovered. I think it's interesting that it doesn't matter how they were killed because I feel like yeah. a hanging... It makes a huge difference, yeah. I think it does. I think a hanging, you know, 
a, a suicide murder mm-hmm. yeah, as it appears to be. This looks like he did it to himself. It's yeah. very different than a guy getting run over. Right, which could have been an accident. Right. But I think I think he's also I think that's another reason that why there's that there's 94 is that that, that they want to mix it up. Well, I I don't know if they want to mix it up, but there's a he's he's operating under a probability of success, right. which isn't 100%. So he he's trying to do as many as possible, but uh it seems like he would want to be have it be consistent with how the original death took place. Yes, yes. exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking because I, I, I honestly feel a murder suicide has has very different psychological impacts on people. Yeah, Siebert goes to meet with Mangale at his lakeside home again, and again Mangale is ecstatic with the results. It seems another batch of killings have been pulled off on schedule. Siebert informs Mangale that they're not totally past the Lieberman problem, though. Apparently, he was seen visiting Frau Doring and may somehow have put their plan together. Mangale thinks the solution is obvious. A nosy, incompetent old Jew has bumbled onto one victim. What more do you have to know? Any idiot could see the next logical step, kill him. They have to weigh the dangers of killing Lieberman against the potential success of this project. Mangale is furious that their failure to solve the Lieberman problem might ruin what he spent 20 years working on. I kind of agree with him here. Though. I do too. Yeah. Like, why would you not just go ahead and have another accident? If this is literally your last hope, just kill that one guy. That's the only thing standing in the way of it succeeding. Uh, like, yeah, he's he's another old man, and and you have a whole bunch of people who's really yeah. good at trying to make deaths look like accidents. I why feel are like... ninety four of these unsuspicious, but that one would be suspicious, I, right? I don't think it would be. Or or even just capture him and get him to Paraguay. Yeah. Like, then, you know, you don't have to kill him. He's just disappeared. Right. I am a scientist. I have done my job. You are an executioner. Do yours. We cut to the reuniting of Ezra Lieberman with his sister. He tells her that he didn't learn anything useful visiting the families of the deceased. They are stopped in the train station by a friend of Kohler's, David Bennett, who wants to know what they know. To prove he is who he says, Bennett shares photographs with Lieberman. Weirdly, though, he seems to have the names mixed up, because earlier, when we saw Wolf Collar introduced as Schwimmer, this guy is pointing to a different face for that name. Bennett refuses to leave the Lieberman's side until they have shared every bit of information they have with him. They decide to invite him home with them and assign him to sort through the clippings from Bannon. We cut away to a snowy dam in Sweden. A man stands in the middle of the dam with a piece of surveying equipment as a car rolls up and comes to a complete stop. When we see Walter Gotell climbing out of the car, we know that the other man must be the target. He says he's looking for a village called Storin, and he's pointed in the opposite direction by the man. When the two get closer to each other, they actually recognize each other as old war buddies. Come now! Mond! What's happened to your memory? My God! Major Arthur! (laughs) (laughs) Turns out, Hartung isn't the target. Mund has been sent here to kill a schoolteacher named Lundberg, but he can't comprehend how this will serve the Aryan race. Hartung reminds him that he wouldn't have been sent all this way if it wasn't important. An order is an order. Good God, man! You are an officer of the SS! Have you forgotten? My honor is loyalty. Those words were supposed to be engraved on your soul. The man's words strike to the core of Munt, and he confesses that he's not here for a man named Lundberg. He shoves Hartung over the edge, and we watch the man fall the entire height of the dam, connecting with the base of it, and cracking into several pieces at the bottom. This particular dam is Austria's Kolnbrine Dam. It was still being built during production. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a dam under construction? 
pretty recently. Yeah, I know. Um, the, the, the del- deliverance, deliverance, deliverance. Yeah. That's correct. We cut to Massachusetts, USA, where Lieberman is meeting with another Mangalay widow, played by Anne Mira. This widow is so much more distraught than the last one, sobbing over the thoughtfulness of the gifts her late husband's students have sent in mourning. Her young son crosses the kitchen to get some juice. No, not Jews. Juice. <laughs> this is Jack Curry Jr. Just Jack Curry. Now. Jack, you bite your tongue. Is that how juniors work? <laughs> is Robert Downey Jr. just Robert Downey now? Or is this kid just weirdly vindictive? Did I mention that the kid is played by the same child actor that played Rosemary Harris's son in the earlier scene? He also has the same purple-blue contact lenses, and it's a striking enough similarity that Lieberman notices this time. When Lieberman announces the boy's twin in Gladbeck, Germany, the mother gets very uncomfortable and sends him to his room. Not Lieberman, she sends her son to his room. How? So, okay... So at this point, starting to put two and two together, right? Right. Right. So are all of the father's former SS agents? No. Or... No. no, not at all. So ha- so it, they one had of them was. Just so one far. of them. Not yeah, all Yeah, just of by them. coincidence. Okay. So it just happened to be yeah. that this guy was. Okay. Because I feel the, like the, otherwise- The other fathers are all different nationalities from all different walks of life. Some of well, them yeah, know what's going maybe on, they, some of them don't. You know, other people left and, and went, you know, to America and to Canada and to Sweden Yeah, no, as wherever. far as I know, the, the point is that this is a random sampling of people who just happened to need children at the same time. Yes. Right. But they were generally random, but none of them were Jewish. <laughs> I don't know. I guess if that was a part of what they were looking for, then yeah. Yeah, I mean, he I forget sa- they go through what, sa- what they were says looking that, for. He says at one point, not a Jew among them. So, yeah, then yeah. that makes sense. The widow doesn't explain herself to Lieberman, but asks him to go so she can get back to her busy week. Kohler's friend Bennett knocks on a door in London, and the same boy answers, but with a British accent. After insisting repeatedly that his mother is not home or available to talk, the boy slams the door in his face. Lieberman and Bennett compare notes, and Lieberman learns of another straight, black-haired, blue-eyed boy. That night. Anne Mira comes to visit Lieberman at his hotel in Massachusetts. She confesses to Lieberman that her son was adopted from a German woman, but that she loves him more than anything and couldn't survive him being taken away. It turns out the woman who processed the adoption was Frieda Maloney, the Auschwitz guard that Lieberman has since sent to prison. When he discussed her crimes with Bainan, he mentioned that she strangled children with their own hair, bayoneted babies, and other such insane Nazi murders. We cut to a prison in Dusseldorf, Germany, Lieberman is being walked through security, and his bags are checked for recording devices. Lieberman is here to speak with Frieda Maloney. She is walked in by the prison staff, and her attorney is standing by to cut the interview short if the questions move outside the agreed-upon parameters. Lieberman asks how she became acquainted with the adoption agency that employed her in the 60s. She said someone from the Comrades organization reached out, and that's Mangalay's private group. She claims to have been kept in the dark with regard to any specific plan, except that they were very precise with the age ranges for the mother and father before she could assign a child to each family. Considering how much information she's willing to give up here, I tend to believe she didn't know the whole plan, because otherwise, why would she endanger it by telling him anything? Yeah, I agree. But also, I wasn't super clear on why she's willing to talk to him. I I realize that there's some sort of exchange happening, but I'm not sure what she's been how she's benefiting he here. knows of more crimes that she has committed and he shows her attorney the paperwork and says that he's willing to drop these charges in exchange for information reliable information gotcha 
The fathers needed to be born in the early 1910s and the mothers 20 years later. The fathers were preferred to be working as civil servants with everyone in good health. They charged $500 for the babies and delivered them at an airport after babies arrived from Brazil. He asks her to recall specific names of families who bought babies from her agency. The second name she comes up with is Wheelock, and she mentions that she bought a Doberman from the man when it was 10 weeks old. When Lieberman mentions Mangalay, the woman freaks out and claims that the Holocaust was 30 years ago, and he's ridiculous for still caring about it. I love the look he's giving her in return, which is this silent, annoyed rage at this woman's complete lack of remorse, like, yeah. Yeah, it's not a big deal. Who fucking cares? Fuck you, lady. The last question he gets her to answer before he leaves is, what was your puppy's birthday? And she thinks he's just crazy. By now, he seems to have concluded that the exact dates are important to the mystery. And so if she bought a puppy 10 weeks after December, then Mr. Wheelock, the other case that she's able to recall by name, must be next in line to die. But that's in dog years. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta do some quick math. <sighs> Mangala... Gives babies. Fourteen years later, he kills the fathers. He kills Doring, Harrington, Curry, and the Currys got their babies four weeks apart, and the fathers were killed four weeks apart. Based on the dog's age, they only have four days to intercept Wheelock's assassin in New Providence, Pennsylvania. Lieberman doesn't even know how to warn the man because the whole story sounds so preposterous. Mangalay arrives at a party in Paraguay, at least I hope it's Paraguay, because it's extravagantly decorated with swastikas and portraits of Hitler, which were less acceptable in, say, America or Germany at the time. A Nazi officer presents his daughter to Mangalay, and Mangalay takes her to the dance floor for a bit of the Danube waltz. Do you guys recall the last time we heard people dancing to the Danube waltz? No. It was during a Harvard graduation ceremony. Oh, was it Heaven's Gate? It was Heaven's Gate. Wow. While they dance, Walter Gotel as Mont locks eyes with Mangalay across the room, and he claims he's here on a second honeymoon with his wife. Mangalay is blinded by rage and blurts out important details of the plan in front of everyone. Supposed to be a Christian start getting ready to kill us, He throws his hands around the man's throat and body slams him through a buffet table. This is truly the most evil that Gregory Peck has gotten to play so far in the film, and you can tell he's absolutely loving it. <laughs> Munt's wife tries to position herself between Mangalay and her husband so she could protect him. He betrayed me! He betrayed you! He betrayed the Iron Race! <laughs> Get it, doctor! I am a doctor, idiot. Don't you come near him! Shut up, you ugly Bitch. Hours later, we see Mangalay with tweezers pulling bits of glass out of Munt's head, so clearly something has changed. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out the general ordered all the assassins to return to Brazil after Lieberman met with Frida Maloney in prison. Mangalay pretends that's not a big deal, but Siebert explains that she told Lieberman about the adoptions and even specific details and dates. Because Maloney was only involved with the American adoptions, Mangalay suggests that their work could continue internationally without a problem, but Siebert says that it's basically done. They have 18 successful assassinations from their original estimations, which predicted one or two successful products. Your operation has been canceled. No! Your operation has been canceled! Mine continues! Mangalay returns that night to his lake house, and he brings his flashlight to the dilapidated remains of a maternity ward across the water. 
Among the inserts of baby embryos being implanted in women's uteruses, we also see a hanging bracelet of animal parts. Some say shark's teeth, but they look more like claws to me. One source said jaguar claws. I think that's closer to correct. They don't look like teeth to me. I mean, yeah, I don't I don't know that it matters. No, what it, because what they it don't is. explain it really. I don't yeah. get this, no. and it bothers me. And I is there something about it in the book? I couldn't find it in the. I mean, nothing more in the book than what's in the movie, which is that he had it at the nursery and he wore it after that, um, and that he handed it off to the kids. I just but, they 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 play it up as so significant, but then you just have no idea. Yeah, what it never it, it never really pays off. No. Back in the present, the rooms are white with dust and overgrown vines. We get another flashback of a nurse walking through a ward full of beds with sleeping children. Weirdly, though, these children look almost the same age as the placed adopted kids we've seen so far, except they're all blonde. They also don't seem identical at all. One of them looks like Jonathan Brandis, but I couldn't tell if it's him. <laughs> so these were just test subjects? I don't know what they are, uh, unless it's just like... This was, this was a practice baby area, or these are the same babies and their hair changed color before they were given out to other families in the like six months between this age and the age we've been seeing them. Mangale picks up the same bracelet from the dusty floor of the room, and we cut away to the Biological Institute at the University of Vienna. Lieberman meets with a biologist, Professor Bruckner, and asks him to make some estimation of Mangale's plan from the perspective of a geneticist. Bruckner dismisses his own first theory without even saying it out loud. It's impossible, of course. Excuse me, doctor, but what is impossible? What is impossible, doctor? Mononuclear reproduction. Oh, doctor. Cloning. What if I were to tell you that I could take a scraping of skin from your finger and create another Ezra Lieberman? I would tell you not to waste your time or my finger. What exactly did Lieberman say that, like, got this guy to these conclusions so quickly? Yeah. It seems like this guy's putting the pieces together much faster than anybody else. Yeah. yeah. What he's talking about is cloning, and at the time it was just starting to be a very real scientific possibility, even if it wasn't publicly being done. Bruckner takes Lieberman down to the basement and shows him footage of experiments wherein mononuclear reproduction was successful with rabbits. Bruckner does mention, though, that it would not be enough to genetically duplicate a person to recreate them. Nature and nurture work together, so you'd have to make an attempt to replicate their upbringing as well. Insanely, Lieberman has put together that Mangale is cloning an army of a specific individual, but he hasn't figured out who. Is Mangale trying to reproduce himself? No. He has brown eyes and he comes from a very wealthy family. They start to go over the details of the artificial backgrounds chosen for the boys from Brazil. It finally clicks in Lieberman's head that the donor, who is to be cloned, need not still be alive. But at this point... I would have been so sure it was Hitler, I would have assumed that his death was faked with this exact plot in mind. I would just be like, oh, I guess Hitler's alive then, because obviously it's Hitler. It right. has to be Hitler. Bruckner says that with the right equipment, some Mozart blood, and women, a person could clone hundreds of Mozarts. He scribbles on his chalkboard a bit more, and when he turns around, Lieberman is gone. He finds the Nazi hunter in a lecture hall having a breakdown. Not Mozart, doctor. Not because... Not a genius who would enrich the world. 
but a lonely little boy with a domineering father, a customs officer who was 52 when he was born, and an affectionate, doting mother who was 29. The father died at 65 when the boy was nearly 14. He knew all these details off the top of his head, yeah. and it took him until now to put it together. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. He would have, he would have seen pictures of young Hitler. Yeah, he would have immediately known what was going on. Hitler in the springtime. Right. Anybody else wouldn't take more than a second to answer the question: Who would Mangale clone? <laughs> There's only one person. We cut back to Mangale's lake house, where a helicopter is whirring to life on the dock. Dead bodies of guards are strewn about the property, and gunmen race in all directions. Siebert walks leisurely up the path to the house and finds no sign of Mangale, but for no apparent reason, Mangale has scribbled all over the walls of his home to let Siebert know exactly where he's going. <laughs> Wheelock's name is circled in red on the wall next to the word Lieberman in huge block letters. Colonel Schwimmer steps through the front door splashing gasoline about the home, as every trace of the plan is set to be erased. Before the fire has begun, busts and paintings of Hitler are removed from the room. The lake house is quickly fully engulfed in flames, and the helicopter lifts off. We cut to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, USA. Mangalay drives down a foggy country road on the way to the Wheelock residence in New Providence. As he approaches the Wheelock home on foot, a group of Dobermans bark at him from a kennel on the property. When Wheelock answers the door, he mistakes Mangalay for Lieberman and invites him inside. Mangalay is swarmed by more dogs, and Wheelock warns him that they will tear away his throat if he looks at the man sideways. The two men take seats in the den, and Mangale is drawn to photos of Wheelock's dogs, evidently taken by his adopted son. Obviously, Mangale is impressed. My son took those pictures. Very good. Very good. Little Archie farts, if you ask me. This is all part of the plan, because Hitler's father was not supportive of his artistic aspirations either. Wheelock asks for a better explanation as to why Nazis would want him dead, but Mangale is so crowded by the dogs that he lies he was attacked by a German shepherd as a child just so the man will get them out of the room. Wheelock reluctantly obliges and closes them out of the room. As soon as the door is closed between them, Mangale has a gun on Wheelock and demands to be led to the basement. The dogs hear Mangale cock his pistol and start freaking out behind the door. On the way to the basement, Mangale admits that he is the doctor that delivered Wheelock's son. The man is very confused by this announcement, and as Wheelock backs down the steps, he assures Mangale that he couldn't care less about Jews or Nazis, but it's too late to save him, and Mangale knocks him down the basement steps with several gunshots. Mangale pages through a photo book in the den, admiring photos of his prepubescent Fuhrer as Lieberman's car rolls up the driveway to the Wheelock house. Lieberman finds the door ajar and pushes into the house after barely knocking without waiting for an invitation. Eventually, he finds Mangale on the couch and recognizes him immediately. Yo, Herr Lieberman. In the book, Mangale follows up pretending to be Lieberman by pretending to be Wheelock, and yeah. it works mm. for a while. Oh, they say like that—that that can't work. Like, yeah, okay. there's no it way you work. can't yeah. recognize this guy. That's yeah. why they had to change it for the movie because a Nazi hunter isn't going to waste any time recognizing Mangale. <laughs> Lieberman starts marching across the room directly at the Nazi without like any hesitation. He's just like, oh, that's Mangale. Time to murder you. <laughs> but uh, Mangale gets a shot off and the hit doesn't slow Lieberman down. 
They wrestle violently for the gun, and Lieberman even chews through Mangalay's wrist to get him to drop it. Mangalay gnashes at the man's ear, and both men are smeared in blood when Mangalay regains the upper hand. This whole quick fight took three days to shoot because of the advanced ages of the actors, and reportedly they found the scene endlessly amusing as they rolled around on the floor together and took breaks to catch their breath. <laughs> the dogs are still going nuts at the door, but Mangalay trains the gun on Lieberman and starts monologuing so he can fully devastate the Nazi hunter before killing him. Whenever it looked like the project was dead, Mangalay would get signs from God. Just this morning, in his hotel room, the television was suddenly playing films of Hitler's story as if to encourage him. For a while, Mangalay tells Lieberman what he's already figured out, but adds that Hitler was party to this experiment, having surrendered his own blood and a cutting of rib skin to aid in the project. So specific, rib skin? Well, because well, like taking from thing. the ribs. Oh, it's a biblical oh, man, thing. I totally missed that. Because he says we were in a biblical mood that night. But then he hurt what was theoretically possible that I could create one day, not his son, not even a carbon copy, but another original. He was thrilled by the idea, the right Hitler for the right future, a Hitler tailor-made for the 1980s, 90s, 2000. Sorry, at this point, I really want a movie called Hitler 2000. <laughs> I'm sure there's a movie called that. Lieberman makes a run for the door, holding back the dogs, and on his way, catches a bullet in the back. It looks like when the squib goes off that a big wire is suddenly protruding from the wound, but Lieberman gets a hand on the doorknob and is shot again through the wrist as he turns it. The dogs burst in and tear the gun from Mangalay's hand. Outside, we see young Bobby Wheelock riding his bike home from school. Mangalay is surrounded by the dogs in the living room, and tries several code words to call them off, but it's no use. Bobby is fascinated to find two bloody old men in his house. Holy shit. He immediately takes photos of the damage the dogs and men have done to each other. Mangalay claims that Lieberman attacked him unexpectedly here and begs Bobby to call the dogs off. Cut! The dogs back away, but Bobby has already seen through the lies because the dogs would only attack the armed man. My dear, dear... Action! Cut! Cut! Don't listen to you! The dogs are all over Mangalay again, awaiting the kill code from Bobby. Lieberman recommends Bobby call the police rather than having to take either man at his word, and the plan makes sense to the kid. Mangalay lures Bobby off the phone by offering to tell Bobby secrets about himself somehow. What do you mean? If I prove to you that I know you better than anyone in the world, better even than your own mother, will you listen to me? He tells the child that he does poorly in school, but only because he knows more than his teachers and spends his enormous brain power on his own more important thoughts. He tells Bobby that he'll be the world's greatest photographer and that he often feels like a prince among peasants. It weirdly reminds me of similar speeches in films like Harry Potter or The Princess Diaries. <laughs> Preteen protagonists finding out about hidden greatness and identifying with it immediately because literally anyone would. What 11-year-old boy doesn't think he's the <laughs> smartest person on the planet? I feel different from everyone sometimes. You are infinitely different. Infinitely superior. You were born of the noblest blood in the world. He finally cuts to the chase and informs the kid of his genetic origin. You are the living duplicate of the greatest man in history. Adolf Hitler. He absorbs the comment in silence for a moment. 
Oh, man, you're weird. <laughs> in the book, at least, he like tries to preface it with, you might have heard in school that this man is evil, but that's all propaganda, and he's actually yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you are Hitler. Like That's how he should have led into it, not just like, you're the greatest. You're Hitler. That guy everyone hates. <laughs> Lieberman gestures to the boy that he needs to tell him something. He tells Bobby to find his father because Mangale has killed him. The kid rushes out of the room. As he searches the house for his dad, Mangale shouts to him that his dad doesn't matter anymore, but weirdly, we're getting this pre-echo. We can hear Mangale's words before he says them, until Bobby finds his dad and re-enters the room. Bobby! You freaked out maniac! <laughs> so the code word for the dogs are cut to stop, action to guard, and print to kill which are all words from the film world, not photography. In the book, Bobby is an aspiring filmmaker. He says he wants to be the next Alfred Hitchcock, and someone jokes that he at least got the initials right. Weirdly, though, the code words for the dogs are not film-related in the book. There, Bobby uses ketchup for stop, pickles for guard, and mustard for kill. That seems dangerous if you had like a yeah. barbecue on the yeah. weekend or something. They never have barbecues. <laughs> the dogs tear Mangalay to shreds on the floor and the kid just watches in silent fascination. He calls off the dogs and tears dribble down his face. Amusingly, the date of Wheelock's assassination was visible on the Lake House chart, meaning that Mangalay's death took place on February 20th, 1979. The real Joseph Mangalay died less than two weeks earlier on February 7th of 79, a mere four months after the film's release. Reportedly, he suffered a stroke and drowned while swimming in the ocean. So he suffered a stroke mid-stroke. Lol. <laughs> if I was a political cartoonist at the time, I would have drawn God in a restaurant saying, Waiter, what's this guy doing in my ocean? And the waiter would say, The stroke. <laughs> Get it? Because he died from a stroke in the ocean. No. Mangalay's body was buried under another name, Wolfgang Gerhard, and his death was not publicly announced until six years later in 85. Lieberman's inspiration, Simon Wiesenthal, was still hunting for Mangalay at the time of the announcement. Mangalay's remains have since been exhumed and verified through DNA testing in 1992, but it's not impossible that he might have seen this film during that narrow four-month window between its release and his fatal stroke. And he would have been like, I wish I'd thought of that. Yeah, I hope that they thoroughly destroyed all the dna after they did yeah. that test in 92 bobby wheelock leads the dogs out of the room and returns to lieberman still bleeding all over his couch i think you'll die if i don't call an ambulance for you he agrees to help lieberman in exchange for lieberman not telling the police what he has done here he even forces lieberman to shake on it with the same wrist that he was just shot through but i think what hurts him more is shaking hands with literal hitler yeah <laughs> While Bobby calls the police, Lieberman fishes the last surviving list of Hitler clones out of Mangalay's coat pocket. Later, we cut to the Lancaster General Hospital where Lieberman is seen recovering in bed. He awakens to find David Bennett standing over him, asking which assassin died at the Wheelock house today. Lieberman explains that it was Mangalay himself, and the entire plot has died with him. Bennett is not satisfied as long as the Doring boy, Harrington boy, and Curry boy, or the Wheelock boy, are still walking the earth. And what are you going to do about it? Kill the boys. Bennett insists that Mangalay must have had a list of boys on him, and he's already searched Lieberman's things looking for it, but Lieberman refuses to provide it. It's like, where was it? it was, was it literally in his hand this whole time? I guess. Like, you searched the entire room, you didn't check the sleeping old man? You will have to take it from me, and when you do, you can add my name to the list. I don't mean you any harm. 
When Bennett takes too long to snatch the list away, Lieberman grabs a cigarette lighter off his nightstand and slowly and predictably sets the list on fire, but somehow still surprises Bennett. We cut back to the farmhouse where Bobby Wheelock processes the photos he took of dead Mangalay and wounded Lieberman. As he observes the photos, we rack focus to the Jaguar Claw bracelet in the foreground, and then the credits roll. I guess this last scene with the dark room and the bracelet is missing from some versions of the film. I don't know if it was like a reshoot or they came back with it and decided we need this as a, as a tag on the end. The real-life South American Nazi hunter trips have inspired various films and TV episodes, but the first I usually think of is X-Men First Class, wherein Michael Fassbender's young Magneto flies to Argentina to hunt down Nazis and avenge the death of his parents in the Holocaust. The Simpsons even references this film directly with Season 13, Episode 15, Blame It on Lisa. Please don't be mad. I've been sponsoring an orphan boy in Brazil. Aren't you sweet? Sharing your allowance with a poor Brazilian boy. Don't you know the boys from Brazil are little Hitlers? I saw it in a movie whose name I can't remember. <laughs> Another reference to the events of this film can be found in Archer, starting with Season 2, Episode 9, Placebo Effect, wherein it is established that Dr. Krieger was born and raised in Brazil. I thought Krieger was a German name. Uber German. It means warrior. How come you know Portuguese? Because I grew up in Brazil County, Rhode Island. <laughs> a lot of Portuguese in Rhode Island. Where you're from. Born and raised. Uh-huh. Then, in Season 5, Episodes 10 and 11, Krieger teams up with several identical clones of himself to turn on the rest of his ISIS co-workers. Are you clones of me? Am I a clone of you? Did you all grow up together? In an actual house? With an actual mom and dad? And was I ever there? No to all of it. <laughs> the reference seems officially made in the Dreamland season during a flashback sequence when Krieger sicks his half-robot Dobermans on a group of Nazi officers attempting to disrupt his experiments. <laughs> I'm also fairly certain that one of my all-time favorite animated series, Clone High, owes its existence to this film. Though Hitler is actually a glaring absence among the show's historical figures. I, I guess, wonder why. I guess that makes sense to leave him out. Yeah, this film's wonderful. I really like it. This last, The last fight scene is so intense. And just having Gregory Peck play Mangale and, and this Ezra Lieberman Nazi hunter character is so wonderful. I was so surprised by this film. Yeah. I, I had never seen it. And I going into it... I was just like, I don't even understand how this movie is going to work. Right. And in addition to that, I don't really think that this is a premise I'm going to enjoy. And it was just fabulous. Like yeah. the whole way through this movie was really well done. I think the the only thing that could have made it better is having them figure out a little earlier that it was Hitler clones because it's so obvious already. Or, or even just withholding more information so that we haven't guessed it already. Yeah. But there's probably about 45 minutes where we know and he doesn't yet. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, that's too much time. You, you kind of know. I mean, I, probably going into it. It was probably yeah. hinted at pretty well in the, in the trailer. Yeah, I, I, I feel like um, my knowledge of this movie is the, it's just, it's that movie with about the Hitler clones. Right, well, exactly. Like, yeah. but, literally but to be all fair, I know. like I said, I knew that going in. That was all I knew about this movie going in was that it involved Hitler clones and I was still engaged the whole time mm -hmm. and I still like the mystery of why the hell are you killing these 65 year old men I yeah. had no idea and it didn't you know it didn't occur to me until they started to unravel that like yeah. why that would be happening I listened to the audiobook before I sat down to rewatch the movie 
And uh, I feel like the audiobook does the pacing a little bit better in terms of like coming to the conclusions and the reveals and everything. But I didn't even remember that they ever thought that it was potentially clones of Mengele or that for some reason there were these 65 year old men that were important, that they were the targets. Like maybe they were secret supporters of some Jewish yeah. behind the scenes group or something like that. So um, I agree with you that the mystery is really well laid out. Um, I, I could see how it would even work better as a book in terms of, you know, I think re- it does. revealing the mystery because yeah. you probably, well, obviously you don't get the same exact visual clues with the little boys um, being exactly identical. Yeah. But I think that, yeah, you're just able to kind of string that mystery along a little bit more. Yeah. But honestly, the the movie and book are very, very similar. Like I, I don't recall any very specific differences other than, the kid wanting to be a filmmaker turning into a photographer and the code words changing for the dogs. Aside from that, it's pretty much beat for beat the same. I, I don't remember, uh, and maybe it's because I just it was an audio book and I powered through it really quick. I don't remember the David Bennett character showing up either, um, the friend of Kohler's. Yeah. Um, so maybe he's not in the book, but they needed someone else that they were explaining things to to split yeah. up the work of discovering all these children. But um, yeah. Uh, for the most part, uh, yeah, I, I think it works really well. I think it's a fun story and I'm glad that it found its way to Lou grade, who is the kind of person who's like, this interests me personally. So I'm going to make it a movie, whether or not it makes sense by movie math. I think you still, you need a character at the end. If not Ben, it's got to be somebody. It could easily be his sister for, for the second half. I suppose. But I feel like she'd be on the same page as him in terms of like, you can't. Maybe it's Bainan from Reuters or something like that. Someone that's been an ally that's established already. It feels weird to bring this guy in at at the last moment. Yeah, but it has to be some, I do like the idea though, that it's somebody who would be sort of hell bent on making sure that you kill all of the clones whereas he's like you can't condemn an innocent right yeah uh i i really enjoyed this movie as well um it i had not seen it so this is my my, my oh, first okay. my first round going into it uh and so i was very excited because it's a movie i've wanted to see for a very long time but have just never made the time for it uh so again and, and again going in knowing that it's the movie about the clones of hitler so uh i i was very curious about uh you know, spending all this time kind of like setting up all this stuff. It was like, it's like yeah. when are they going to get to the clones? Uh, <laughs> but send in the clones. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, I very much enjoyed it. Uh, I think Gregory Peck did uh, a great job and it's just so fun to see him so sinister. Yeah. Um, like just like it, just such a, a stark comparison to uh, to kill a mockingbird. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, obviously not as stark for his captain Ahab, but, uh, you know, for a, you'd be like, it's like whenever you, when Christopher Reeve would play someone who was like more sinister. Yeah. It's just like, you just kind of like go, I don't really buy it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny too, because like, uh, going into it, you start with that sort of bonkers premise and you expect you're going to have a really hard time finding like legitimate actors to connect with this story. And when just all it took was the the perfect job of reaching out to Lawrence Olivier and then other people signed on because they wanted to work with Olivier. Now you have Gregory Peck and you have James Mason and all these Mm, huge people that lend such gravitas to such a high concept, ridiculous story that it just makes it such a fun piece to sit down to watch. I remember the first time I watched it. And like you said, we all knew 
it's the Hitler clone movie. But I didn't realize going in on my first watch that Gregory Peck was going to be playing Dr. Mangalay. And I was like, <laughs> what the hell? Like, this is so far left field from anything I've ever seen him play. And it's literally the most evil person that's ever existed that he's playing here. And it's just crazy that this came together at all. Yeah. And and it's so weird. Like, at the time, nobody knew who Gutenberg was, obviously. But it's he's also a very weird ingredient to this mix. It is. Because of what he's done since this movie. Right. That it's just like, what, he's like the Joker guy. He, he just uh, is silly. And he's he's a police academy and, and <laughs> little lady. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. But, uh, but yeah, it's great. Big thumbs up for me. Yeah, thumbs up. Thumbs up for sure. Our director here was Franklin J. Schaffner. He previously directed Planet of the Apes and Patton, which was his only other World War II film. He also directed Papillon, which I love, and we've covered his work on Sphinx earlier this season. The novel was written by Ira Levin. Levin also wrote the novels adapted into Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby and Brian Forbes' The Stepford Wives, as well as Frank Oz's 2004 The Stepford Wives. Hmm. The writer here was Haywood Gould. Earlier this season, we heard his work in Fort Apache, the Bronx, and later he writes a few episodes of The Equalizer and then Cocktail. The music here is from Jerry Goldsmith. He's a composer of the first James Bond adaptation climax episode, Casino Royale, in 1954. He also scored In Like Flint, Capricorn One, The Swarm, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Magic, Alien, Gremlins 1 and 2, Explorers, Interspace, Matinee, and The Burbs for Joe Dante, Secret of Nim. Ghost in the Darkness. So far, we've discussed his work on The Ballad of Cable Hogue, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Cabo Blanco, Omen 3, and Outland, and he's back this year for Raggedy Man, right around the corner. Cinematographer Henri Decay. Most of his credits are for French New Wave titles like The 400 Blows and Le Samurai, but we've seen his work so far in Michael Ritchie's The Island last season. The editor here was Robert Swink. As I said, he got an Oscar nomination for his work here. He previously edited Diary of Anne Frank. He came back to Schaffner for Papillon and later lights Rooster Cogburn, Midway, and Going in Style. We've previously seen his work in Schaffner's Sphinx earlier this season. Gregory Peck was Dr. Joseph Mangale. He previously starred in To Kill a Mockingbird, Spellbound, Roman Holiday. In 1958, he starred with Charlton Heston in Big Country, and Heston would go on to play Joseph Mangale in 2003's My Father. Peck and Olivier have both taken turns playing General Douglas MacArthur in Peck's MacArthur and Olivier's Inchon, which we'll get to next season. This is at least the second time that Peck has played the protector of a child who represents a rebirth of evil protected by fierce black dogs after 1976's The Omen. Lawrence Olivier played Ezra Lieberman. Before this, he had appeared in Rebecca, Spartacus, and Sleuth. Ironically, for his recent role in Marathon Man, he played the fictional Nazi criminal Dr. Christian Schell, who was originally based on Joseph Mengele. Is it safe? Is it safe? Is it safe? Yes, it's very safe. It's so incredibly safe. Is it safe? No, it's very dangerous. I honestly don't care for his performance here, but it earned him his 10th Academy Award nomination, a record at the time until he was surpassed by Jack Nicholson. Even Simon Wiesenthal, who Olivier's character was based on, was not pleased with the performance. I'm guessing that this Oscar nomination is to blame for Olivier's identical performance in 1980's The Jazz Singer, for which he was awarded a Golden Raspberry. <laughs> but it's basically the exact same voice. He's playing Ezra Lieberman again in that movie. We saw him last in Clash of the Titans, and he's back next year for Notorious Flop Inchon. James Mason played Edward Siebert. 
He was Philip Van Damme in North by Northwest, rounding out the Hitchcock trilogy after Peck's Spellbound and Olivier's Rebecca. He had experience playing Nazis after a pair of appearances as General Rommel in The Desert Rats and The Desert Fox, The Story of Rommel. He's also in Kubrick's Lolita, Judy Garland's A Star is Born, Voyage of the Damned, and The 78 Heaven Can Wait. He's back next season in Sidney Lumet's The Verdict. Lily Palmer played Esther Lieberman. She's in Anastasia, the four-poster, and she's the titular Julia in Adorable Julia. Uta Hagen played Frida Maloney. She was Ada in The Other, which lost a Patreon poll earlier this season. Steve Gutenberg played Barry Kohler. He's best known for the Police Academy, Short Circuit, and Three Men and a Baby franchises, or possibly the Cocoon franchise. Yeah. Two movies as a franchise, I don't know. And famous Stonecutter. He owes his career to the Stonecutters, yes. Denim Elliott played Sidney Bannon. We've seen him in Raiders of the Lost Ark and Bad Timing so far. He comes back for Last Crusade, and he gets a quick little cameo in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in the form of a screenshot from Last Crusade. (laughs) He's also Coleman in Trading Places, Elliot Templeton in The Razor's Edge, and Mr. Emerson in Room with a View. Rosemary Harris played Mrs. Doring. She was Annie's granny in Raimi's The Gift, and then came back to play Raimi's Aunt May in Spidey's 1, 2, and 3. She's also Nanette in Lumet's Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. John Diener played Henry Wheelock. He was Henry Luce in The Right Stuff, Wallingford in Day of the Dolphin, and The Commissioner in Airplane 2. John Rubenstein played David Bennett. Most recently, he's portrayed Daniel Webster in The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina on Netflix, an attorney who specializes in witch law. And Mira Wh- played... Witch law? Witch law. Yeah, witch, witch, witch law. Witch law is witch. Witch? And Mira played Mrs. Curry. Last season, we had her as Mrs. Sherwood in 1980s fame. She was also a mugging victim in our Patreon review of Out of Towners. She was Miriam in Awakenings and Dorothy Halligan, the grandma, on ALF. She is the wife of Jerry Stiller and the mother of Ben Stiller, and she appears with them for appearances in Heavyweights, Night at the Museum, Reality Bites, and Zoolander. Jeremy Black played Jack Curry, Simon Harrington, Eric Doring, and Bobby Wheelock. He doesn't have any other film roles, but he also played Hitler and Jesus in various stage productions. Bruno Ganz played Professor Buckner. Amusingly, Ganz is best known for playing Adolf Hitler in the much-memified Downfall, wherein Hitler has a breakdown in his bunker and his dialogue is routinely retranscribed to portray Hitler furious about some recent pop culture occurrence. (laughs) Walter Gotell played Munt. He previously appeared with Gregory Peck in The Guns of Navarone. He's likely most recognizable for playing M's Russian counterpart, Gogol, in several James Bond outings. He was also Victor Klemper in X-Files episode Paperclip, which is presumably similar in plot to this film. Yeah. (laughs) I assume it's about a Nazi who's uh, being protected by the American government. David Hurst played Strasser. He was Rudolf Reisenweber in Hello, Dolly! and Colonel Dankhoff in Kelly's Heroes. Wolfgang Priest played Lofquist. Like co-star James Mason, Priest had previously played Rommel, for 1971's A Raid on Rommel. Michael Goff played Mr. Harrington. He's best known now for playing Alfred in the Burton and Schumacher Batmans. He continued working with Burton in Sleepy Hollow, Corpse Bride, and even voicing a dodo bird in Alice in Wonderland. He also played Dr. Flamond in Top Secret, and we saw him last as Sam Murdoch in our Patreon review of Trog! Joachim Hansen played Fossler. He was Alfred Yodel in both of Dan Curtis's miniseries War of Remembrance and The Winds of War. He was also... SS Obergruppenfuhrer in The Eagle Has Landed. Sky DeMont played Hessen. He was Sandor Savost in Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. Carl During played Traustiner. He was a detective in Possession and Dr. Brodsky in A Clockwork Orange. 
Linda Hayden played Nancy. She shows up in several Hammer horror titles, including Taste the Blood of Dracula and Old Dracula. Richard Marner played Doring. He was President Zorkin in The Sum of All Fears. Gunter Meisner played Farnbach, as we said before, he's Slugworth in Willy Wonka, and he actually played Adolf Hitler proper in Dan Curtis's Winds of War miniseries. Prunella Scales played Mrs. Harrington. She was Aunt Julie in Howard's End, Sybil Fawlty in Fawlty Towers, and Maud in Wolf. Jürgen Anderson played Kleist. He was first officer in Sea Wolves, German propagandist in Victory, and later a German guard in Lassiter, which is that Tom Selleck spy movie that we watched. Yeah. Mervyn Nelson played Stroop. He's movie shop owner in Garbo Talks. He wrote and directed a pair of features, Some of My Best Friends Are, and Fun and Games. I don't know why it just ends with Some of My Best Friends Are, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Wolf Collar played Schwimmer. We covered his work last season as De Guyer in Rough Cut, and earlier this season in Raiders, alongside Denim Elliott, and The Sea Wolves. Collar gets the craziest face in the famous Raiders head-melting scene. He also plays more Nazis in The Eagle Has Landed, Force 10 from Navarone, High Road to China, The Keep, and even the 2017 Wonder Woman. Actually, that was World War One. Are they Nazis? Uh, no, they're not Nazis. They're just German War. officers. So, But they probably weren't very nice. Yeah. He probably became a Nazi after the war, unless he probably didn't survive the first Wonder Woman movie, did he? I like the line, though, that he has in Rough Cut when Burt Reynolds is like, oh, you're the guy who, like, kills people, like, for money? And he's like, yes, I like it. <laughs> they're just like, oh, this fucking guy is creeping me out. I think that's everything for the boys from Brazil. Thanks again to Louis Letizia for their generous contribution to the show. If there's any title you'd like us to review, our top Patreon tier includes a custom review of any pre-1980 title. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you choose. We leave you now with the trailer for The Boys from Brazil. History has shown how one man with a dream can turn the world into a nightmare. Can history repeat itself? The Boys from Brazil starts where that nightmare left off. But for the dream to live again, 94 men must die. Gregory Peck is the architect of that dream. Lawrence Olivier is the man who must destroy it before it destroys the world. He betrayed you! He betrayed the Iron Race! tell you who the boys from Brazil are, only that they are not science fiction. Thirty years the world has forgotten, and you persist and persist. Well, not at guards now, madam. You are prisoner. The time is the present. The people exist. The threat is real. Operation has been cancelled. No!
Your operation has been cancelled. I'm continuous. Barry is dead. Helibama. can decide if it's a dream or a nightmare but be warned if history can repeat itself so can man a total of 94 assassinations look for the boys from brazil before they look for you